welcome back everybody to Thoughts on the Social World, Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven and as always, it's a great pleasure to have your company. Now, today um, I'm talking again with John Pizzuro, who is the CEO of Raven. Now, we talked a few weeks ago, but I just thought there's so much to get from John, so much he's done and so many things that are being involved at the moment with to do with either trafficking or to do with criminality, to do with child exploitation, that I thought we've got to have him back again. So welcome back, John. Hey, how are you, David? Good to hear from you. Good. Well, look, um, I, I thought this time we could just start by literally having a conversation that would begin to kind of develop um, in people's minds just what kind of work you do and what the aims and objectives are and what the, the if you like, what the the, the hurdles and the challenges are too. So maybe just give us a sense of one or two things that have been happening to you this week and we could take it from there. Is that okay? Yeah, that's perfect. Um, okay. So, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, people, some people deem things interesting or not. Right. So a couple of years back when I was investigating like the dark web, right. Hmm. You, you, um, one of the things is, is that you never kind of know what you're going to get. And um, it is um, really challenging um, from the respect is that you're trying to figure people out. So like on the dark web, uh, for example, when we were looking at traffickers and people that were buying children, strategically you have to figure out what their belief system is, right? What their values are, what's going to move them. So the same thing can be said for politics. So that's why a day for me, it's, it's, it's not a nine to five. It's uh, today I'm engaging with this lawmaker. Tomorrow I'm, I'm doing an interview on trying to solve a solution. So I think those are some of the things that are just interesting, you know, on a daily basis. Okay, so varied. I mean, okay, well, let's start with the dark web one and just maybe give us a, a, what you can without breaching any kind of confidentiality, what you can tell people that are listening about what that would involve. Um. So... Here is the uh, here's the here's the challenge. So, like, there are communities on the dark net um, that just basically target children. Uh, you're talking about uh, some of the um, uh, most heinous things that you would ever see. Uh, for example, there's a post on one of the dark webs on how to seduce a four year old, and it was read over fifty five thousand times. So. Those are some of the people that like New Jersey uh, was engaging with. We've arrested over 30 people, each one of them having 20 victims where uh, we had this one guy, Jonathan Sprague, who's now serving time in uh, California, who in his interview um, said that he was going to kidnap an eight year old. So um, mm -hmm. and sexually assaulted um, uh, massage parlor workers. So when we talk about advocacy from a Raven standpoint, because of all the knowledge and experience that I have, that's what really becomes valuable to the policy standpoint. And that's where, you know, uh, understanding all the challenges in catching those individuals. Yeah. Now it's trying to give law enforcement those tools in order for them to, to, to catch, you know, some of the most heinous predators out there. Well, you've really specialized in, in uh, if you like, extending your experience as well, if I understood you last time, because you're very now very much into the forensic aspect of things, the neuroscience and so forth, and trying to sort of understand the whole behavior patterns of of criminals. Um, 
that that must have absolutely kind of blown your mind sometimes in terms of what you've discovered. You know, it's understanding people. Here's the key to anything in life, um, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint or psychology. The key really is understanding where people come from. So I think I've, um, for me, I spent a great deal of time of understanding people's motivations and understanding how people are made up psychologically, neurologically, right? So it gives me the ability to connect with them and understand and go there. Um, you know, it's almost being empathic, right? Uh, what you're trying to do is understand where someone's history is, where they came from, uh, in order to engage with them better. Because let's face it, you know, even um, people like people or like themselves, so understanding where someone is going to go, um, where they're going to be is vital, whether you're doing detective work or you're actually doing, you know, lobbying or having strategic relationships, because the end goal really is to try to um, get to where people are and um, and then come up with a strategy behind that. So much of of child abuse, child exploitation I mean, I I know, and I mean, and you you explained this before as well, and so have many other people. I mean, is is to do with organized crime, okay? Because there's a lot of money in that. I get it, trafficking, so forth. But so much too is opportunity opportunistic individuals who are just literally attracted, born attracted to children. Was that fair? Yeah. So statistically, if you talk about, um, there's studies that say three to 5% of the male population is, uh, um, you know, a, has pedophile tendencies. So, right. If you take 9 million people in the state of New Jersey, for example, um, and you take maybe 450,000 and you, and you add or 450 million, uh, 4.5 million, and you do, let's say 3%, it's a, it's a million people, right? Yeah. So not a million people. Uh, it's, um, you know, um, 100,000, right? So, you know, it's just, there is a segment that the reality is, is um, that's what they like. You know, motivations um, and understanding mindset of criminals is really important. So it's the same thing I did. So when I was doing, I did traditional organized crime when I, I, I don't know if I told you in the last one, but I had a contract out in me by the Genovese crime family. So it's, the you know, you didn't actually mention that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I spent five years doing the traditional five families. So the Sopranos hundred percent true, right? So I investigated the Genovese crime family, you know, uh, law enforcement officers, uh, killing people for the mob, um, which, which ultimately got me this contract, but the, um, but the reality is, is that um, um, that is really the important aspect is mm -hmm. understanding organizations. So when I was doing non-traditional organized crime and I was doing Asian organized crime, or whether it be Vietnamese or let's say triads, I would understand that. The Italians, I would understand culturally that. Mm. Um, and I think that and I spent five years doing corruption. So a lot of the political people that we're talking about today, you know, I did wiretap after wiretap of criminal organizations. So before I actually got to uh, trafficking and child exploitation, I had investigated the Cali cartel, I investigated 9-11, uh, investigated organized crime, corruption. I spent time in homicide. So it's the same thought process and strategy and patterns that I take with me 
today. So, and it's all experience driven because ultimately for me to be successful in catching people, I had to understand them. So, and I think that today, especially today in the world of influencers, we don't listen anymore. We don't pay attention because it's the me generation. So we don't understand other people. And I think the minute we stop understanding, whether they be our adversaries or our friends, the minute we stop understanding people, the more likely we are not to be successful in understanding where we need to go. Okay, let me ask you a question, because on this side of the pond, you know, you try and rationalize things in order partly to get through the day, but partly to make, you know, to make better work for yourself and so on and actually deal with things better. But I've always been of the opinion that people who are attracted sexually to children um, are essentially the nearest thing I can, can consider them to be is addicts. Now, addicts generally, there's no such thing as cure. We know that they're going to be addicted for life, whether it's drink, drink, drugs, gambling or children. But effectively, the difference with people who are uh, have pedophile tendencies, whatever, is that the victim is not themselves. The victim is now somebody else. So as there can't be any cure, there only can be control and therefore the controls needed for people interested in children sexually have to be self-control, but have to have social controls as well. Would you say that's a fairly fair assessment? You know, uh, it's interesting you say that. Yes, because, you know, if you knew that you were attracted to children and if you knew it were wrong, there mm -hmm. should be an outlet, let's say, that maybe helps you not actually do that, right? So maybe that does dissuade people, right? Kind of like, um, you know, from a behavior standpoint. So, but the challenge is, is because of, because of what society um, kind of looks at, most people in this crime type will not talk about it, right? That's why, you know, it's always surprising. It's not surprising to me anymore, but when your next door neighbor or it's the police officer or the priest or the people in trust um, take advantage of kids, but that's been happening since the, um, since the dawn of society, even if you go to the Greeks and the Romans. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I think that the crime side of it, if you like the organized crime side of it, all the things and very, very dangerous and scary things that you outlined that you've come across in your work, for me, it wasn't as much that. It was the individuals that were problematic um, in terms of actually trying to do anything we could to stop people crossing that line and actually committing criminal offenses and desperately trying to get them to seek some help that would actually begin to control their urges. Trouble is, there's just so many. You gave the numbers earlier on. It must be the same in most of the Western world. And effectively, um, we seem to be swamped. Is that is that too much to say? No, I, we're 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 100% swamped. So I mean, you know, and I think that you know people conflate trafficking with exploitation. So child exploitation is a much bigger problem than trafficking, although trafficking gets a lot of the attention. You know, um, when we talk about organized crime, for example, I investigated trafficking before even trafficking was called trafficking. Um, when you talked about like the triads or every type of organized crime group, um, you know, especially um, when you're talking about Russian and Asian organized crime would be, bring people into the U.S., but what they use culture 
or, or use threats on their family overseas in order to um, in order to control them. But, you know, from a financial standpoint, the child exploitation thing really isn't um, a lot of people think it's the movie Taken where, you know, there's mm, these networks yes. where people are financially benefiting and it's not necessarily the truth. So I think that's the challenge is that you have so many uh, NGOs, for example, that focus on trafficking, mm. but the reality, uh, non-governmental, like nonprofits, but the yeah. reality is, is child exploitation is a much more pervasive problem than trafficking is. For me, on the front line, yeah. I, I mean, it used to be when I started out, you know, working and sort of protecting children back in, in the 1970s, right? Effectively, you were really looking at the kind of four things, you know, the sort of sexual, um, physical neglect or emotional abuse of children, you know, whatever. It, was, it wasn't easy, but it was more straightforward. Now, with all the kind of, if you want to call it, the new abuse kind of categories and the way the world is. So whether it's the Internet, whether it's uh, trafficking, whether it's slavery, whatever, um, it, it's like a whole new landscape for frontline professionals. Yeah, I mean, look, it's um, I think technology has really changed it. Because today everyone knows about anything, right? So, like, let let's say um, whether it be the war in Ukraine or what's happening in Palestine and Gaza, because today we have information so readily available, people share things, and today people can't even tell you what's true or what's not. And I think the uh, exposure of what's happening today, societal. Um, is challenging as well. And that's where today everyone has a smartphone. So we're so connected that it's easy to find people to victimize them more now than it was like even last year and especially 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about you mentioned, um, we'll talk to technology and you did happen to mention in our little chat before we started recording here that you're being asked a lot about AI. Uh, oh, would- yeah. How does that factor into things? All right. So right now we think about AI. Um, um, so AI is um, it's it's a challenge because today you can be whatever you want to be on AI. Um, she um, uh, when you're talking about AI is that now I can create my own children. So if I if I'm a consumer of pedophilia. Uh, AI, generative AI is going to allow me to, to um, look at my four-year-old or six-year-old or my neighbor's four-year-old and create a digital version of that person. Mm-hmm. So, um, so now, from a grooming standpoint, where I would physically groom someone, um, I don't need to do that. I can get a program to do that. And what the program does is basically replicates language. So... If, uh, David, if, if your favorite band was the Beatles, right, and yeah. Um, yeah. I'm talking to you about the Beatles, and you have this conversation, what AI is going to be able to do, it's going to be able to replicate everything that you say, um, and then repeat that back to you. And that, as we advance in AI, people are not going to discern what's real or not. Even today, it's difficult. But AI is going to allow someone to groom at scale, the thousands of people, as instead of a uh, 10 people they've just had a big conference over here on ai um i'm I'm obviously sure you're aware of it at bletchley park 
I think Kamala Harris was over here for the states. But I mean, I I wonder. I mean, the the, the feeling on the ground might well be they're just throwing a pebble into the ocean. Uh, is it as bad as that? Yeah, and and here's the thing: is that no offense to the, all the people that are having these meetings right now. I think Congress and the Senate on this side they've had fifty meetings on AI, but. People in Hollywood are worried about them getting replicated. Uh, people are worried about jobs. No yeah. one is pitching the child stuff. And I think that is where um, um, it's like anything else. We do things until we and we don't fully understand them. And right now, I think that's part of the challenge is the only people that are talking about AI and child exploitation or trafficking and that are, are the nonprofits that basically are out there supporting children. So yeah yeah i think yeah. that's part of it you know any thoughts i mean you know i i i bet a pound to a penny that you know you haven't got every answer but uh, any thoughts that and you know when you're asked about it when you talk about it when you're you've faced up to congress didn't you you talked congress recently i mean what kind of starting advice have you been able to give people well the good thing is is that I, I have to say the relationships that we've developed uh, on the Hill between the Senate and Congress and some of the staffers has been great. Um, there are there are offices that want to do things with AI. You know, the funny thing is, is that, you know, most of the people that um, really want to talk about it, AI has become a buzzword. But I think some of the younger staffers um, who live in this generation are starting to see it and understand it. So it's those individuals that um, are more solution orientated and based than the older people like me, you know, because I guess generationally we didn't grow up with that. So it's harder for me and you, let's say that never really grew up that way. Yeah. Think that yeah. way. So that's the, so it's really, that's why when I talked about, and I started this conversation is understanding where people are coming from is so vitally important because again, it's what their lens that they're looking at and what they've experienced. And you kind of have to kind of look at it from that aspect in order to come up with the solution. Okay. Uh, Ray, take Raven, for example, um, your company. I mean, are, are you managing to at the very least network and at the very best, uh, employ people, clever people of that generation who can, in, in fact, kind of take it further. Yeah, you, you know, so um, just even some of the Raven board members, like I'll, I'll give you two individuals like Robert Lees and me and John Matson. Very, very technical. These are individuals that wrote code uh, and understand things at a level more so than than I do. So it's mm. it's. In anything, in anything we do, it's really just getting and surrounding yourself with the people that understand, uh, you know, solutions that you might not think of. And, you know, ultimately, we um, were stronger together than we are apart individually. And I think from a team standpoint, it's relying on that. I think that's one of the lessons I learned in running a task force. Um, mm. in running some of these large scale, even organized crime operations, which I had 40 people is you're relying upon people's strengths. I think the more we can rely on people's strengths and um, things that they know about, the more likely we are to come up with a more comprehensive solution. Okay. But of course, you've got to have people who can also absorb and function properly with the 
terrible kind of content that you're talking about all the time. You know, it can't. It, I mean, it's all very well. I imagine thinking, you know, the, 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 this generation, you know, you get some sort of sympathetic people, but I mean, it's a terribly emotionally draining subject, isn't it? You know, how do you put this? And I, I'll refer to my mental health, right? So it's the way I look at things. Um, you know, you know, from a neuroscience standpoint and a wellness standpoint, you know, it doesn't, I'm not looking at the content anymore, but I understand everything. Um, mm. I understand what's happening. So it's more of a purpose driven um, aspect. And I think that's for all of us. So, uh, you know, most of Raven, we've experienced this in our entire lives, but we look at it differently. So not to say that it's going to not impact us, but, you know, you develop enough tools and understanding mm. of, how to go around, go around it. And I think from a wellness standpoint, the things that I've seen in my life can never be unseen. Right. Mm. So, but I also know that um, I like, for example, internally, the language that I use is differently. I've got really good awareness. So if I'm having a bad day or stressed, then I can do something that's more empowering that will alleviate some of that. So I think that's important is the overall awareness. Um, and the realization is that you're just one person in one small cog in a wheel and you can't do everything by yourself. No. The only thing I look at is that did I did I today like and this is from a day to day basis and this is how you know I look at managing things. Did I make the world incrementally better the next day? Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, you know, um, which it is is that you don't look back and just say, well, I, I didn't do 25 million things. Can we make the world a better place? You know, and, and, and I think it's progress. That's if you can measure that, hey, you know what, today I did this. Well, you just move the ball just a little bit. And that's all you need to do. But I think people want to look at the finished product um, mm-hmm. and they look at where they are, don't know how to get there. And there's that stress that. And the other biggest thing is stress, and this is for everyone on social media, is that we create images of ourselves that aren't even real, right? We see everyone's vacation. David, if I looked at everyone's uh, life on social media and compared it to mine, I would think my life is horrible. But the reality (laughs) is my life is wonderful, right? So it's just we can't compete to what we're trying to envision, all right? And I think that is a stress right now that is even more than the actual content we're looking at, because we just need to just look, did we make the world a better place? Did I do something positive today to make a change? If that answer is yes, and I can tell you that answer is yes for everyone, depending on what meaning you give to it. You know, the stress that you feel, um, how do you put it, reduces a bit. No, I, I do get that. I mean, yeah, I get that. I mean, my work life too, you know, was was full of horrible things. But I, I I reject the idea of just saying to people it's a job. I don't worry about it, you know, because it's not just a job. But at the same time, you do get to a place where you can see and work with the most horrible things and get on there professionally. I'll tell you one thing though. I don't know how you react, John, but for me, the way it affected me, and it still does to some extent, is really strange. It's that. I have difficulty still watching either films or wherever that don't have a happy ending. 
Isn't that interesting? That's how it affected me. Yeah. But you know, I don't get I don't I don't think I've got mental yeah. health problems or anything like that. But everybody reacts in different ways and compartmentalizes things and then internalizes it, don't they? You know why too, David, too? And this is again, this is what I've learned through a lot of different neuroscientists. It's 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 meaning. You know, the meaning that you attach to something, it, it's and it's hard. You have to train yourself. So right. basically it yeah, David, it's it's internalized, like how we internalize things. And I think that's really important is that internalization and the meaning that we put into something really drives that stress, right? And that happy thing. It's just, if you see something negative over and over again, that you can't believe that anything's happy because that's the meaning you attach to it. You know, for me, the meaning I attach to is that I am making a difference in these individuals life to make them happy. So I think that's what drives me. And I think that is um, why I still continue to do what I do. Do you work, do you, either you or Raven or wherever, um, get enough time, because I know it's therapeutically helpful to uh, talk to and work with survivors? Yeah, you know, like seeing a survivor and, and what happens is a lot of times in the ICAC world, um, we don't see the finished product. What we see mm. is the person that is traumatized, but we don't see the person come out of it. And I think those are really good um, examples of why people and why we do do that work, right? Yes, because that, so, that's the feedback. Uh, that's the opportunity for you to realize that you've done good. Yeah, um, and I think part of it is too, it's just, it's, it's understanding that, it, but you know, what happens is that we can't see it when we're in it every day. And I think that is where, when you're in the battle, there's, you don't, you miss everything out there. Right. And this sounds wonky, but the reality is, is gratitude. Right. So, you know, I went out elk hunting in, in Idaho. I stayed in a tent. Uh, for a week, it turned out to be a fat camp for me, I guess, because I'm walking all over the um, hmm. walking all over the mountains. Um, I didn't see any elk, right? I paid for this 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 trip out there, but just walking in nature grounds me, right? And then looking at it and observing, you know, and being thankful for the things that you do have. And as funny as it sounds, like the sun shining, the smell of fresh air, you know, finding things that ground you and to be thankful for. So I think we lose sight of a lot of that when we're in the battle, you yeah. can't see anything around everything in the battle. So if you're talking to people that have been abused on a daily basis and you do not um, be thankful for some of the things that are there and look at it from a different point of view, then you're going to be stuck in that spot. Okay. I mean, listen, we could go on all day. I think we've got about another five minutes, and I want to use them as a very, very usefully. Um, what sort of messages could you? Because you, you're. I mean, I know you're very young still, but you're still quite long in the tooth in terms of experience. So, I mean, people coming into either law enforcement or social work or any of the kind of um, therapeutic practices that involve working with um, child exploitation. What kind of advice would you give to make sure that they keep healthy, keep well, 
and have longevity in their career? Are there things that you can offer people? You know, I know you haven't got any magic, but anything that you can think of to offer them. All right. Number one, your language. Most important, your self-internal language, for example, is that I don't say the word problem. I say the word challenge. Mm -hmm. Language words are 7% of communication, but the way we internalize things, my language that I use is um, empowering. For example, I say I am. I don't say um, I should, for example. I should because people sometimes should all over themselves, right? (laughs) So language is really important in how you speak to yourself. One of the most important things that you can do, right? Uh, number two is how how you look at things. Uh, purpose, right? So for me, um, purpose um, trumps anything else. This is a mission. It's purpose focused. Um, and when I look at things, right, internally, I look at a lens. I could see a children suffering or I could see a children saved. The meaning yes. you attach yes. to things so, so important. Um, number three is awareness is that when you find yourself, um, not being your normal self, it's time to go do the normal things that keep you the normal self. So for example, is when, let's say you used to go to concerts and used to go for walks in the parks, um, used to, you know, do some outside activity, right? When you stop doing that, um, you have to get back to that activity that made you that person. So it's that self-recognition um, and self-awareness. I think those three factors are really important and they've served me well. And number four is that support system is great too, as well as um, mm-hmm. having the people um, socialization. Matter of fact, it was in the UK. They just did this study and they showed cognitive decline for people that were isolated during COVID. Um, yeah, socialization is important. Do not withdraw from people, um, because that socialization and going out, the more you isolate yourself, the more, um, more, how do you put it? Challenging this going to be for yourself. So those are the important things. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Well, listen, um, how time flies, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm going to have to wrap it up now. Um, John, you're you're an excellent guest. Thank you. And um I'm gonna I'm gonna take advantage of that and come back to you in the not too distant future again, because I think there's just so much we've got to talk about here. Um but for now, can I just say to John, thank you very much indeed for your time. Talk to you soon, and don't you worry, I'll make sure that Raven and anything that you're doing or want me to put on the front page again, you know, whether it's links or whatever. We'll do that and make sure that people get a more of awareness of Raven, what you're doing, and John, what you've done. So thanks ever so much for being the guest again. Yeah, appreciate it, David. Uh, you have an awesome day, all right?